I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can, and here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right, so now you're thinking, $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website. Bowie at cheapthings.com. Book early. S is for the Serious Moonlight Tour. So the Serious Moonlight Tour was launched in May 1983 in support of Davy Bowie's album Let's Dance. The tour opened at the Vorst Forest National in Brussels on the 18th of May 83 and ended in the Hong Kong Coliseum on the 8th of December. 15 countries visited, 96 performances and over 2.6 million tickets sold. Ka-ching! Ooh. We did talk about this as well previously, um, but this <laughs> that was the green light for Davy Bowie, 1983, wasn't it? It was. Uh, to start making money. It was. He was on a new contract. He just signed to EMI and he had loads of cash in the bank. And they said, tell you what, go off on tour, see what you can bring back. Yeah, I had a chat recently on Cheap Things with Di Davis. And oh, he's, yeah. he's a brilliant fella, really great. And he started working with Bowie just before Main Man kicked in. And he was there when the contract negotiations came in with RCA and everything. And, and you know, he, he was there and he, and he was a friend of Bowie's before uh, Tony uh, DeFries came into the, the frame. And so, he, you know, he did, he knew what went on. And he did think that David Bowie would not have made it without Tony DeFries. And so, you know, the the, right. argument, the arguments rage, don't they, as to whether he would have made it without Angie yeah. and whether he would have made it without uh, Tony DeFries. Mm. I think it is fair to say, after all of the research that we've done, then uh, both of them were serious players, weren't they? Definitely. Also, I think there's uh, two separate issues there, isn't there, with DeFries? There's no doubt, but we couldn't have got where he was uh, without DeFries. But then 
the arrangement, the financial arrangement he seemed to have with Main Man uh, didn't really suit Bowie, as it perhaps should have done, we might say, in hindsight, <laughs> by covering all my bases there legally. Anyway. I think you probably did. No bad thing, mate. No bad thing. So, anyway, the tour itself drew mostly favourable reviews from the press. It was, at the time, Bowie's longest, largest and most successful concert tour to date, although it's since been surpassed in length, attendance and gross revenue by subsequent Bowie tours. Most certainly so. The tour, designed to support Bowie's latest album, Let's Dance, was initially designed to be a smaller tour, playing to the likes of 10,000-seat indoor venues around the world, similar to previous tours that Bowie had undertaken. So, you know, that we're talking now about Wembley, aren't we? Wembley Empire Pool. Yeah, that's right. The NEC and all that kind of stuff, which yeah. he did play anyway. Uh, but we could have seen him at one of those venues, if only, instead of at Milton Keynes with 59,998 other people. Well, the thing was, I was talking to Carlos Alamar uh, last summer about this tour and he said they started out with all good intentions you know as you just mentioned there playing uh, thinking they were just going to play in venues of between you know five and ten thousand you know the demand was massive as Bowie hadn't been seen on tour for five years had he since the Isolar 2 tour and so uh, it was unprecedented it was only like in the very last stages where the record company suddenly said hey we need to really bump this up a bit here and start playing arenas and outdoor venues well everybody was taking a little bit aback by the success of Let's Dance. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a, it is a great pop album, there's no doubt about it, but it just absolutely took him off into the stratosphere, mm. didn't it? Because he'd had all those, he'd had all those kind of like the weirder years and, you know, the Berlin trilogy and all that kind of stuff, whereby, uh, he, he, as we've just discussed, he wasn't that bothered about making money because he no. thought, the more money I make, the more money that goes into Tony DeFee's yeah. pocket. Yeah. And then he kind of dipped his toes in the pop water mm. with scary monsters and that worked with yeah. Ashes to Ashes. So yeah. he just thought, right, I'm going to go to the next level now or do my best. And and I don't even think Bowie saw what was coming next. Well, no. Him. I mean, you know, famously, inst- the instruction for Let's Dance to uh, Niall Rogers was make me a hit album. Yeah. But he couldn't have imagined it was going to be this huge. No, no, global. no. So, however, you know, the success of Let's Dance caused uh, unexpectedly high demand for tickets. As we mentioned, there were 250,000 requests for 44,000 tickets at one show, for example. As a result, the tour was changed to instead play in a variety of larger outdoor venues. Okay, the largest crowd for a single show during the tour was 80,000 in Auckland, New Zealand. That is quite phenomenal, that. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I, I don't know these things, and you're the brain box of the operation, Bob. How many people live in New Zealand? Well, I'll tell you what, Mike, in 1983, uh, the population of New Zealand was 3.199 million, actually. So 80,000 is a sizable chunk of that. It most certainly is, yeah, incredible. Okay, and the largest crowd for a festival date was 300,000 at the US 83 Festival in California. The tour sold out at every venue it played. Of course it did. Two right to. Bowie himself had a hand in the set design for the tour, which included giant columns affectionately referred to as condoms as well as a large moon and a giant hand the stage was deliberately given a vertical feeling especially due to the columns and an overall design that bowie called a combination of classicism and modernism the weight of one set of which there were two was 32 tons so you're saying that the columns were affectionately referred to as condoms yes. maybe the large moon should have been affectionately referred to as the anus oh my <laughs> <laughs> if only bowie had thought of that in fact he might have done oh he would have been kicking himself <laughs> afterwards uh. oh why didn't i uh, anyway the tour musicians bowie hired mostly musicians he'd used on his previous albums uh, though some of the musicians from 
Army's 1978 tour were rehired for this one, including Carlos Alomar, who was a designated band leader. Yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan, who contributed guitar solos to six of the songs on Let's Dance, and who was uh, an up-and-coming artist, was to join the tour, also to please, well, perhaps to please the American audience. Well, yeah, we're going to go into Stevie Ray Vaughan, aren't we? So we don't have to pick the bones out of that just yet. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan showed up for rehearsals in Dallas in April. Soundboard tapes from the rehearsals exist. I know this because I've got the bootleg. Um, yeah, yeah and, it, and it's called uh, the Duke and uh, the Duke meets the Hawk or the Duke and oh, the Hawk. All right, and and it is it's it's great. You know, I mean, it's obviously different to what you hear when uh, the the tour actually kicked in. Yeah. with Earl Slick. Mm. Um, but you can see why Bowie would want Stevie Ray Vaughan in there because he could just go off on one. And uh, I know that Mark Ratcliffe did a uh, an in concert for Radio One. He produced an in concert for Radio One with Stevie Ray Vaughan. And he was telling me about how he had this amazing guitar sound. He thought, how's he getting that sound? It's just like unreal. Yeah. And then after the sound check, he went backstage and then followed a cable through the back up the stairs. We know the, this terrain, don't we? Because we did the cheat things uh, trip to the, the Manchester Apollo yes, yeah, uh, for Iggy when yeah. uh, Iggy played there with Bowie. And he followed this cable up and into the dressing room where he found another Fender Twin amp, Mike Tup. Right. So he had one Fender Twin on the uh, stage with him. Yeah. And he had another one snaked off up in the dressing room, which is obviously all brickwork, mainly yeah. mm. uh, with a natural echo in it, with wow. the microphone on it. And that's how he got that incredible cool. sound, uh, in a live style anyway. Fantastic. Uh, right. Yeah, okie dokie. And so, um, yeah, anything else to say there? Yeah, did he uh, show up with the cocaine habit? Well, uh, this has been documented, hasn't it? But I, I don't know. I didn't ask him. <laughs> no, all right. <laughs> This is uh, Steve Ray Vaughan, of course, and not Mark Rackley. <laughs> and a hard partying wife. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out, Bob. It could have got me in some serious bother. Anyway, uh, given that Bowie himself had moved to Berlin in the late 70s to try and kick his own cocaine habit, Bowie and Vaughan's management failed to come to an agreement on how to temper the situation. And in the end, Vaughan pulled out of the tour. So there have been various stories as to why this happened, haven't there? I mean, yeah. so I've not heard that story about him having the cocaine habit or the crazy wife. That was a new one on me. But as I say, we will go into this in detail when we talk about Stevie Ray in a bit. We will, yeah. Okay, then. So um, this is funny. This is kind of like a bit of a, a Russian roulette, if cool. you like. So the supporting <laughs> acts. We'll do the Chuckle Brothers on this, probably. Okay, all right. So, all right. Men at work. Well, there you go. You see that? <laughs> the bullet went off immediately. <laughs> well, and the beat. Ice House. You be 40. Or the tubes. Well, there you go. That's where I'm in at that point. I'm into. And moving on to Peter Gabriel. Wow. The Go-Go's. Madness. Dexies. Uh, Television. Big Country. uh, Rough Trade. And Amazulu uh, benefit show. Right, okay. So, I mean, if you got Peter Gabriel on this tour, you did well. Or television. Oh, or Dex's yeah. All the Tubes. Yeah. But, yeah, it's each to their own, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that Men at Work were the opening act in Australia. Probably, yeah, so, you're right. But, I mean, they must have been thrilled, that opportunity, mustn't they? I would have thought so. Do you know what? A mate of mine, and I've got a mate, um, but he's just uh, recently got to know uh, Kevin Rowland. Oh, yes, right, okay. My mate, he's, a, um, he's called Matt. He's a big fan of Dex's, and he was just sat next to him on a train, and he's like... Oh, you know, Kevin Rowland's got a reputation for being quite feisty. Yes, yeah. And uh, Matt was just thinking, oh, it's one of them situations. Do I say anything to him? Do I just let it go? <laughs> and then he, he just couldn't help himself. And he said, I just want to say, Kevin, I'm just a massive fan of yours. And he was just off on one then. And he oh. was just like, and they're good mates now. Really? Wow. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and, and Matt just said he's just an amazing fella. And he's, you know, just, yeah, absolutely. He is a fascinating guy. He really is. Oh, completely. I've asked my mate to just ask him if he's got any stories from the Serious Moonlight Tour. Oh. Uh, because you never know. It might have just been the case that they had a porter cabin at one end, had a furtive nod at each other. Uh, 
at one point and then that was it or he might have ended up like playing a few gigs on that tour yeah. I don't know and getting to know him a bit so I uh, saw so him if it's a story to be told and Kevin will tell it then we're going to go for it for cheap things oh anyway. great okay yeah worth a shout definitely okay so uh, yeah onto the song selection so Bowie and Carlos Alomar selected an initial list of songs uh, for the tour 35 of which they rehearsed one song that was on the rehearsal list that never actually got to the rehearsal stage was Across the Universe which Bowie had covered on uh, an obviously Young Americans album now it, we, we'll get into the yes. why's and wherefores of that later yeah the, uh, initially the band rehearsed in a studio in Manhattan before moving to uh, Dallas to do some dress rehearsals each band member wore a costume which was designed down to the smallest detail as if in a character in a play this is a recurring thing in Bowie live shows by the extravaganzas anyway uh, two sets of each person's costumes are made and worn on alternate nights and everybody got to keep one at the end of the tour as a souvenir how nice so I have to wonder if Ed Bowie kept any of the spiders club you know because I know that Bowie if he gave one to like the Sims Brothers or whatever yes then he probably kept one himself yes we know that's how Bowie rolls um, but you know I wonder if he kept any of the spiders gear because I know I have asked Woody about this mm. and I asked him if he kept any of his gear and you know it, it ended so badly for Woody I can imagine him just getting them and sticking them in the bin bag and thinking bollocks to you yeah you know? or just having a giant bonfire maybe yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, Woody's actual explanation uh, he said that they were all falling apart you know because they were working so hard so you've got a drummer yeah. in some crazy clobber and you're sweating like Billy O on stage and he said they were just kind of coming apart at the seams well I suppose it was a different level of touring wasn't it because Bowie wasn't a superstar at that point here you know Sirius Moonlight he's on private jets all the time so they're not kind of yeah, having the same wear and tear or not in the back of a tour bus let's put it that way there's something to come later about his shoes so, oh yeah uh, I know. So, yeah we'll go on to that <laughs> anyway but uh, yeah okay and also uh, he said that uh, the band's costumes were a nod a slight parody to all the new romantic bands that were growing in popularity oh. at the time uh, so uh, yeah obviously they've got the big uh, big suit for Bowie yeah. but everything else was very ornate and obviously as we know the new romantic thing kind of uh, it booked the trend of punk rock didn't it yeah very much Stuffing so yeah it. so there you go okay that's a good one uh, to discourage counterfeiting tickets and backstage passes were printed with small flaws that casual observers wouldn't notice but tour staff and security were trained to spot that is real attention to detail there that's a brilliant idea it is on the 30th of June 1983 the performance at the Hammersmith Odeon in London was a charity gig for the Brixton Neighbourhood Community Association in the presence of Princess Michael of Kent. The 13th of July 1983, Montreal Forum performance was recorded and broadcast on American FM radio and other radio stations worldwide. The concert on the 12th of September in Vancouver was recorded for the concert video Serious Moonlight that was released in 1984 and on DVD in 2006. Yeah, at the Canadian National Exhibition Stadium performance on the 4th of September 83 in Toronto, Bowie introduced his special guest Mick Ronson, who borrowed Earl Slick's guitar and performed the Gene Genie with uh, Bowie and his band. Mick had only been asked to play the day before and uh, well he talked about it later and this is a great i know this story it's such a great story because they they bumped into each other and i think mick ronson was slightly reluctant to play because the idea of playing before this in these huge stadiums you know in toronto with bowie again but um, bowie said yeah please come along do it yeah well we did uh we did uh, uh an actual uh, two episodes i think we did on mick ronson didn't yeah. we and we did cover this but he said i was playing slick's guitar i'd heard slick play solos all night so i decided not to play solos and i just went out and thrashed the guitar i really thrashed the guitar i was waving the guitar above my head and all sorts of things it was funny afterwards because david said you should have seen earl slick 
Affleck's face, meaning that he looked petrified. <laughs> yeah, he carried on. He said, I had his prize guitar and I was swinging it round my head and Slick's going, hey, watch my guitar, you know. I was banging into it and it was going round my head. Poor Slick. I mean, I didn't know it was his special guitar. I just thought it was a guitar, a lump of wood with six strings. So the last show of the tour, the 8th of December 1983, was the third anniversary of John Lennon's death, whom Bowie and Slick had previously worked with in the studio. Slick suggested to Bowie a few days prior to the show that they play across the universe as a tribute but Bowie said well Bowie said well if we're going to do it we might as well do Imagine and so they rehearsed the song a couple of times on the 5th of December in Bangkok and then performed it on the final night of the tour as a tribute to their dear friend so at Legacy the tour was a high point of commercial success for Bowie who found his new popularity perplexing yeah he would later remark that with the success of Let's Dance and the Serious Moonlight tour he'd lost track of who his fans were or what they wanted one critic would later call this tour his most accessible because it had few props and one costume change from peach suit to blue. Yeah, and Bowie did say that um, in a previous episode we quoted him where he was talking about how he's, uh, he would lose his audience every now and then but they would come back to him. Yeah. It was one of those things where he knew full well that he was pushing his luck in one way or another and and certain elements of his audience would not like the change which was yes. natural, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, of mean, course. If you've got somebody who loves Diamond Dogs they're not necessarily going to love Young Americans. No. Uh, but, I mean, it, it transpires that most of them did. Yeah, yeah. And then you go from young Americans, like to station to station and low. And uh, so it was all of those uh, all of those occasions where Bowie was testing his audience mm. and, and pushing them and pushing yeah. himself. So uh, when he says, you know, I don't know what people would make of this, the, uh, the songs that they did spanned his career, didn't they? Well, yeah. I mean, the thing about this, I always thought, it was really, he wasn't sort of uh, trying to change his audience, or not um, consciously anyway. The audience was always going to be there for this. It's just that he happened to grow a bigger one of people who, who wouldn't have been interested in Diamond Dogs and Young Americans and all that kind of stuff. And and youngsters coming through as well. I mean, who would never have heard Bowie before? Yeah, yeah. You know, people who didn't hear David Bowie until Let's Dance and thought that's what he was, you know. Bowie later specifically tried to avoid repeating the formula for success for his serious Moonlight tour with his 1987 Glass Spider tour. Well, he managed that all right, yeah. didn't he? <laughs> no offence. And it does go to show, doesn't it? Yeah, that yeah. it doesn't matter how much kind of gloss and theatrics you put into something if the music's not there and the arrangements aren't right and the image isn't right to a lesser extent, yeah. then it's not going to work. And it, Well, it didn't, did no, it? No, yeah, you'll get sussed. So the personnel on the tour, David Bowie, lead vocals, of course, guitar and sax. Earl Slick, guitar. Carlos Alomar, guitar, backing vocals, Musical director too. Carmine Rojas, bass guitar. Tony Thompson, drums and percussion. Dave Libolt uh, on keyboard synthesizers. Steve Elson on saxophones. Stan Harrison, saxophone woodwind. Lenny Pickett, also on sax and woodwinds. And George and Frank Sims, uh, backing vocals. They'll get their own little spot anyway, won't they? So let's look at our own personal memories of um, the Serious Moonlight Tour, because we, uh, we both went to Milton Keynes, didn't we? We did, yeah. I mean, oh, it was just so great. I mean, you went... Well, do you want to go first? Do you, want to, you went with Trace, Yeah, OK. You? So I went with uh, my missus, Trace, and my sister, Tina, and her husband, Duncan, OK? And it was hot, I do remember that. And I do remember also that we got down near the front, and we sat through Ice House, who I wasn't particularly keen on. Mm. And we sat through The Beat, who right. I wasn't particularly keen yeah. on. Uh, but we were right, quite well, pretty near the front anyway. Because uh, let's face it, you know, if you're looking at 65,000 people yeah, in, yeah. in a natural auditorium, mm. it's pretty damn cramped. Yeah. Um, and so we, we just uh, stood there and thought, right, we've got a good spot. We're going to stick it out. 
and pretty uncomfortable, but you don't want to move, do you? Then, of course, the minute that Bowie came on, a load of knuckle-draggers came from the back, probably uh, the uh, aforementioned 1983 <laughs> insurgents, you know, the new army of Bowie fans yes, who yeah, just yeah. knew Let's Dance, yeah. and they just came, like, herding the way down the, the front and just mixing it up and forming what was uh, quite ridiculously a kind of a mosh pit, you know, just, right, like, yeah, yeah. throwing yeah. people out of the way. And my options were either to have a fight with a load of them or to re- uh, retreat to the back with the wife, which, oh. of course, I did the Latter. Ah, nice one. Just let me just say, because you say that you, you took your sister there. I mean, am I right in saying that she was a slightly disparaging when you first got into Bowie in the very early 70s? So did she change her mind? Oh, she changed her mind overnight. Oh, I see. That's okay. what happened. Now we watched, I'd already seen Lift Off with Aisha, Tina hadn't, and then we were watching it on top of the pops, and I was already gone and like lost in, in it. Right. And just thinking, he's, he's back. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, and then and Tina was uh, mumbling disparaging words in the background, and uh, my dad was as well, actually. Oh, was he really? But again, I mean, like Tina. I don't know. I don't know what happened, but over the space of a week, she had a mate called uh, Teresa who, who was absolutely blown away by Bowie on the night. And I think that um, Tina got convinced that he, she'd got it all completely wrong. Right. Okay. And, and then and then got into Bowie in big style. Uh, and uh, funnily enough, my dad was sat, sat there going, "What the? You can imagine, can't you? <laughs> what the bloody hell? And, you know, just sat there, and I'm just like, oh, and Tina's not not having it. And um, but of course, later on, my dad would I'd go around to my dad's house when he was in his sixties, and he would and he would have hunky dory. Or no, oh, he, brilliant! You know, or he, he he loved he loved Bowie eventually. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, I Fantastic. don't think he was so big on low. <laughs> stuff like I don't know if you're in a tranquil mood, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but anyway, well, I got the coach down from uh, from Liverpool Lime Street. And it was a sweltering hot day, obviously, first weekend in July. It was so, so hot, and this coach was packed. But just everybody was so excited. I went with um, a mate of mine called Aid. I have no idea what happened to him from uh, from college in what, South. What, on the day? You've never seen him South since? Bo- no, I haven't. Well, I have seen Well, he was from, uh, a mate of mine from college in South, but I've not seen him and lost track of him after that. I thought you lost but him at he, Milton Keynes. But he was, well, I could have done, because 60,000 people there, Mark. Mm. So we got there. I'm just so excited about it, because obviously, you know, the chance at last, I've always wanted to see Bowie, and there he was. We got, obviously, weren't near, like you, sort of near the front, but we just got a nice little perch just on the side of the hill there, right. on the right of the stage. So Bowie's left uh, if he was on stage, and it was just sensational. Just all, just all these songs, one after another. Great spectacle as well, because even from there, you know, obviously it was designed to be a visual extravaganza, wasn't it? Yeah, and I love the fact he played stuff like Red Sails, which I just wasn't expecting. And also, I mean, he was he was slightly strange because Bowie looked so great and so cool, but then you had the uh, the brass section who looked like Don. Stealth and it ain't half hot mum, you know. But and everybody else looked really cool, yes. and uh, yeah, it was a strange one actually because I, I remember uh, seeing because uh, I, I I used to know Billy Duffy, yes, way back, yeah. and I know him a little bit still, yeah. and he's a great fella. So Billy Duffy, uh, he was in uh, Spear of Destiny, and now obviously the Cult. Mm. Um, but I saw him coming out of a, 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 a an area that you needed to get a pass to get into certainly with Ian Asprey of the cult I saw him coming out and I thought oh should I go and say hello to him oh no I'll leave him you know they're were, they were already on the way up and all that kind of stuff and so I was wondering well, I just wonder if they've been hanging out with Bowie and I don't know whether they had or not mm-hmm. though I do know that John Peel uh, tried to see David Bowie backstage at the series Moonlight oh, Tour yeah. didn't he yeah. Um, yeah. and I believe he was at Milton Keynes and, and, he, and the story goes and whether Bowie knew about any of this or not I haven't got a clue but the story goes that he was sat there waiting for uh, ages and he and, and he would just see other people come through the door like pop stars yeah. and being chaperoned straight through to go and see 
you know, David. Mm. And so whether it was just a PR thing and, and, and David didn't know that John Peel was waiting for him outside. But at the end, uh, John just thought, oh, cobblers to this, I'm off. And he went home. And he went. And I also know uh, Phil Lancaster, obviously at Lower Third, yeah. he told me that another member of the Lower Third tried to get backstage to see uh, David at Milton Keynes and got didn't even get as far as John Peel. So you would imagine that John Peel would have a VIP pass. Yeah, but surely. not access all areas. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I can't remember who it would have been. Yeah, it could have been, yeah, it could it was Graham or Dennis anyway. Okay. Um, but uh, one of them went and would have just had a ticket to get in, probably, yeah. uh, and didn't get to see him. But for me, uh, the thing is that I, um, I've not seen Bowie since station to station oh, yeah, sure. since the, uh, the Wembley shows because yeah. I didn't get to see the Bingley Hall show because by that point in time I joined the fall and I was off doing my own thing mm. you know and so to leave it such a, a long period of time you're looking seven years in between the two gigs and I remember being just absolutely thrilled with it when uh, yeah. on the way home it really was oh. a remarkable thing wasn't it it was everything you could have hoped for it really was I'm guessing for you as well you know it was so different to the uh, White Light Tour you know a completely different look at everything and yeah aspect. yeah and I'd been in the fall and been kicked out of the fall by that point in time right. so you know I, I've kind of got some experience of what it's like being in an abandoned on the road but not uh, playing at Milton Keynes yeah. to 60 odd thousand people uh, but of course I, I bought this quite recently so it's Ricochet Davy Bowie 1983 an intimate portrait by Dennis O'Regan and it's a great book it really is. Now, obviously, um, was it you telling me that Dennis O'Regan fell out with Bowie at some point? Oh, no, it wasn't me, but that's an interesting story. I didn't yeah, know that. I think that, I think that um, halfway through the tour, maybe, I don't know what happened. And maybe it was Dennis O'Regan who told the story. It probably was, because um, there'd been lots of publicity about this book, and I'm not at all surprised. Uh, but I think that, yeah, Bowie just uh, saw his arse, for want of a better phrase, with Dennis O'Regan at one point, and mm. kind of gave him the cold shoulder for a bit, and then invited him back in, and then they got to know each other a, a little bit better, and it, and it was always cool you know and he finished right. off doing the shots and um, and there've been loads of publicity ar- around this book and there's a great shot of david on a plane looking behind him have you oh, seen that's a, yeah it's a brilliant shot yeah, yeah. I know it. and there's like you know these are uh, photographs of him here like having his jaws measured you know <laughs> and they've got a lot of pictures of him with uh, enormous domes and they've got pictures of him with uh, with families abroad who haven't got a clue who he is right. you know around hong kong yeah. and all that kind of stuff and bowie i mean there's a great one and bowie just lounging about uh, what would you call that? It's like a rowing boat, but it's not. It's like it's a rowing boat that you would get in Hong Kong, and you might go. Yes, you go fishing. Absolutely, on. Uh, yeah. No, it's. I'm not going to do any wildlife programs in the near future or travelogues. Uh, oh, I think worry. you should after that, certainly. <laughs> but these um, here also again of him, you know, just like flitting about. Yeah, you know, on it. the water in the in the waterways of Hong Kong and various other places. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and there is a great picture of Milton Keynes, and it was just showing, and and, ah. and I can see myself in. Oh, no, you can't. No, I can, Bob. Can, I can. you really? That's no, all. No, oh, I can't. He tells loads of uh, great stories through pictures, uh, but at the uh, front of the book, it's got his own kind of uh, recollections of what happened. All oh, right. Okay. Uh, so I think that we should just read a few paragraphs from mm. this. Ten years after I'd first seen him on stage, I was introduced to David in a huge hangar in Texas, where he and the band were rehearsing. My first test was to accompany him early next morning to a local boxing gym, where he was sparring and getting into shape for the rigors of life on the road. On the first day, I arrived late, but he must have seen something like to me because I got the gig anyway. I'm afraid it wouldn't be the last time that I showed up after everybody else, and Where's Dennis became something of a catchphrase on the tour. 
It's a tribute to the brilliance of my artistry, or do I mean the tolerance of my famous employer? He said uh, that I made it to the end of the whole amazing journey. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that where's Dennis thing? You think of all people on a tour, the photographer would just be ever-present, be everywhere. You'd be like, get lost, Dennis. You, yeah, you would, be, you would expect him to be there lurking in the background, hoping to catch something that he's not supposed to catch, but no, where's Dennis? Yeah, anyway, so he continued. Uh, he says, uh, Serious Moonlight was an important tour for David. He'd been out of the public eye for some time. He hadn't toured after the release of his previous album, Scary Monsters, which spawned the hit singles Ashes to Ashes and Fashion. The good news for him was that this meant he had a wealth of material from two albums to perform live for the first time to his fans. He also included an eye-catching bit of stage business in the form of a routine based on Hamlet that he performed in the guise of one of his alter egos, the cracked actor. It was lifted from his 1974 Diamond Dogs review and hadn't been seen outside the USA before. While we're on the road, David's film Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence was released. He'd filmed it in uh, Rarotonga in the Cook Islands shortly before we set out so he was appearing in cinemas as well as topping the album and singles charts before long he was selling plenty of concert tickets too so he's everywhere he's ubiquitous he most certainly is and he continues there were 25 of us in the band and entourage we were like family we lived in each other's pockets travelling on the same private jet staying on the same floor of the same hotel eating dinner together backstage before the show sightseeing partying the band party travelled as a unit. It consisted of David himself, eight musicians, security, administrative staff, wardrobe and makeup, and me. Meanwhile, the road crew went on ahead to build the stage. Inevitably, cliques formed. We British guys tended to hang out together, and that often included David. We were like a bunch of homesick expats. We would grumble at the lack of marmalade at the hotel or catch up with the English cricket results. Most of us prefer not to be reminded of our karaoke performances, but I will never forget David and I belting out a version of the madness hit Our House. The pair of us overcome by nostalgia for dear old England, even though, or perhaps because, we were a long way from our London roots. This was on the floor of the Red Shoes nightclub in Tokyo, and David was, by this time, a resident of Switzerland. So, it's great, his, his, his recollections of the tour are absolutely priceless, and there's plenty of them in this book, and the photographs, as you will have seen all over the shop anyway, are great. Um, so, I would recommend it. I got it at a knockdown price in Marks and Spencers, but you, you can find it wherever you like. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
So, continuing the story, Bobbert, in a similar vein, S is also for Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yes, uh, born October the 3rd, 1954, died August 27th, 1990. He was an American musician, singer, songwriter and record producer and one of the most influential guitarists in the revival of the blues during the 80s. So Vaughan was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. He began playing guitar at the age of seven, inspired by his older brother, Jimmy. He dropped out of high school in 1971 and moved to Austin the following year. Vaughan played gigs with numerous bands, earning a spot in Mark Benno's band, The Nightcrawlers, and later on with Denny Freeman in The Cobras, and he uh, continued to work until with them until late 1977. Then he formed his own group, Triple Threat Review, but renamed them Double Trouble in May 1978, taking the name from the title of an old Otis Rush tune. In early October 78, Vaughan and Double Trouble earned a uh, residency performing at one of Austin's most popular night spots, The Rome Inn. During a performance, Eddie Johnson, an accountant at Manor Downs, noticed Vaughan. She remembered, I'm not an authority on music, it's whatever turned me on, but this did. She recommended him to Manor Downs owner Francis Carr and Chesley Milliken, who signed Vaughan to a management contract. So Vaughan gained fame after his performance at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1982. People magazine wrote that he seemed to come out of nowhere, a Zorro-type figure in a riverboat gambler's hat roaring into the 82 Montreux Festival with a 59 Stratocaster at his hip and two flamethrowing sidekicks he called Double Trouble. He had no album, no record contract, no name, but he reduced the stage to a pile of smoking cinders and afterwards, everybody wanted to know who he was. Wow, okay, so impressive stuff. So the Bowie connection now. Uh, On the night after the show, Double Trouble were booked to play in the lounge of the Montreux Casino with Jackson Brown in attendance. Brown jammed with Double Trouble until the early hours of the morning and offered them free use of his personal recording studio in downtown LA. In late November, the band accepted his offer and recorded ten songs in two days. While they were in the studio, Vaughan received a phone call from David Bowie who met him after the uh, Montreux performance and invited him to take part in a recording session for his next album Let's Dance Bowie said of Vaughan's performance he completely floored me I probably hadn't been so gung-ho about a guitar player since seeing Jeff Beck with his band The Tridents who were the Beck's band before the Yardbirds of course That's right and he also added as Stevie's music was such hardcore blues I expected and would have understood a polite thanks but no thanks you can't imagine how delighted I was when he accepted the offer on the spot and said he'd love to try out a new kind of record just for the experience when I asked him if touring could also be a possibility he again replied in the affirmative. Hell yeah, he said. I tore real good. Great. Uh, Vaughan carried on. He said, to tell you the truth, I wasn't very familiar with David's music when he asked me to play on the sessions. This is when he was talking to Musician Magazine in May 83. David and I talked for hours and hours about Double Trouble's music, about funky Texas blues and its roots. I was amazed at how interested he was. At Montreux, he said something about being in touch and then tracked me down in California months and months later. At Montreux, Bowie wanted to know where Stevie grew up. Double Trouble drummer Chris Layton told Billboard years later, uh, How did we all meet? Where did me and Tommy come from? Uh, where did it all begin with the band? He was giving due diligence to find everything out that connected us. He seemed to be trying to realise the idea that Stevie would work on Let's Dance and that we'd all go on tour together, kind of testing the waters of what we could do and the whole concept of involving himself and Stevie. It's interesting, that, isn't it? Bowie's going out with a blues band, you know? Yeah. Uh, in January 83, Vaughan recorded guitar on six tunes from Let's Dance. 
France, including the title track and China Girl. The album came out in April that year, sold over three times as many copies as Bowie's previous record. Vaughan said at the time, David Bowie's really easy to work with. He knows what he's doing in the studio and he doesn't mess around. He comes right in and goes to work. Most of the time, David did the vocals and I played my parts. Hey, he also continued, uh, a lot of the time, he just wanted me to cut loose. He'd give his opinion on the stuff he liked and the stuff that needed to work. Almost everything was cut in one or two takes. I think there was only one thing that needed three takes. Yeah, that was Mal Rogers said that, didn't he? It was yeah. all done so, so quickly. So this is from an article now in Billboard that came out in October 2018 where friends and collaborators Collaborators remembered the union of Bowie and uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, it was just a trip to hear my kid brother on a number one record, says guitarist Jimmy Vaughan, who'd go on to work with his sibling and Let's Dance producer Nile Rogers on the album Family Style. Stevie called me to tell me he'd met up with Bowie and Nile Rogers in New York, and I think they recorded him pretty quickly. It was only one day or something for the guitar. He just overdubbed himself onto the tracks, but he only needed one or two takes, as we just mentioned. He just went in there, all fired up, and did his thing. With the success of Let's Dance, Bowie wanted Vaughan to be the featured instrumentalist for the upcoming Serious Moonlight tour, realising that he was an essential aspect of the album's success. In late April, Vaughan began rehearsals for the tour in Las Colinas, Texas. When contract renegotiations for his performance fee failed, Vaughan abandoned the tour days before its opening date and he was replaced by Earl Slick. Vaughan commented, I couldn't gear everything on something I didn't really care a whole lot about. It was kind of risky, but I really didn't need all the headaches. Slick was required to learn... Uh, all 30 songs in 72 hours before the first show in Brussels. So with Vaughan's own Double Trouble album, Texas Flood, about to be released around about the same time, Carlos Alomar explained to Billboard, there's always that place where a musician comes to be a superstar situation and thinks that it might be a launching pad. This might be the door that I've been looking for. When I met Stevie, it was about him saying, dude, what are you doing? Nobody has founded their career from this. So it's like Alomar giving him advice, saying, really, you know, you're just building. Why don't you just concentrate on building? Well, it seems to be good advice if we continue. Yeah, uh, he continues. He says that he had to... To deny David he wasn't supposed to be there he was supposed to be promoting his debut going out there and killing it playing all night long and then getting in the car and driving to the next gig not jet planes and sushi chefs I think that would have jaded his bluesness Stevie was the real deal and he wasn't going to let anybody take that away from him Texas Flood went on to sell over a half a million copies. The guitarist and Double Trouble will go on to produce three more studio albums of modern blues with 1984's Couldn't Stand the Weather and 1985's Soul to Soul and 1989's In Step. Talking about the decision to turn down touring with Bowie for Serious Moonlight, uh, Leighton said later, uh, Stevie had a major amount of respect for David and vice versa, but sometimes things just don't work out and Stevie didn't know if he could give his full commitment at that point. We were all trying to do things we wanted to do back then. Leighton continued, Bowie saw us play and was so fascinated by Steve uh, that he wanted to figure out how he could work him into what he was doing. I give Bowie so much credit for reading between the lines into our culture and send something that might not have been as obvious to the naked eye. So, I mean, if you look at that and then compare it to uh, the whole uh, scenario with uh, Mike Garson... It's the same thing, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, like with Mike Garson, as we know, he would be trying different things and probably say, no, I want, no, I want it weirder than that. No, I want it weirder <laughs> than that, mate. No, come on, keep coming. What's that avant-garde stuff you do? And with uh, Steve Ray Vaughan, it's like, you do what you do. Mm. Go in the studio. Because those guitar solos, the guitar solos are on, and particularly on uh, China Girl. Oh, it's brilliant. It's, it, the tone of that guitar is astonishing. But yeah, the, the feel of it is just, you know, I mean, it is a blues after all that. So, you know, and fair enough, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a, 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 you know, a rock and roll player. No. Just throwing out a load of licks. But it really it is such an amazing performance on that album. Yeah, and 
like no other Bowie album either. You know, mm. it was a real first for Bowie, wasn't it? So uh, moving on to um, Stevie Ray Vaughan's demise. In the early hours of Monday, 27th of August, 1990, Vaughan and members of Eric Clapton's touring entourage boarded a helicopter at Alpine Valley Resort in East Troy in Wisconsin to travel to uh, Midway International Airport in Chicago. The designated helicopter originally had three seats available, but Vaughan ultimately took the last remaining seat and the helicopter crashed into a nearby ski hill shortly after takeoff. Vaughan and the four others on board, pilot Jeff Brown, agent Bobby Brooks, bodyguard Nigel Brown and tour manager Colin Smythe were all killed. In the months that followed his death, Vaughan sold over 5.5 million albums in the United States. On the 3rd of October 91, Texas Governor Ann Richards proclaimed Stevie Ray Vaughan Commemoration Day, during which a memorial concert was held at the Texas Theatre. In 1993, a memorial statue of Vaughan was unveiled on auditorium shores and is the first public monument of a musician in Austin. Wow. Uh, I mean, I've been to Austin and it's just... I know it's where they have um, the South by Southwest yeah. Festival, uh, but even back in the day, it was a little bit like a kind of, uh, well, an equivalent of New Orleans in a way, but New Orleans would just be like bars and bars and bars yeah, and yeah. bands playing, well, jazz, as you yes. would expect. Yeah. Uh, but they all, it was just all the bar bands. Was it? You know, I mean, there was some kind of indie tinge stuff in there yeah. and a lot of, uh, yeah, American boogie and things mm. like that and blues. So, you know, you could see it was, you could draw a direct comparison between New, uh, New Orleans and Austin, as I remember it. Uh, Vaughan won five WC Handy Awards and was posthumously inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 2000. In 1985, he was named as an honorary admiral in the Texas Navy. Wow, strange okay. one. Uh, in 2003, Rolling Stone ranked him seventh amongst the 100 greatest guitar players of all time. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame alongside Double Trouble in 2015. Right, two right two. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.